Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching in Clubland, we speak to Neil Gray. Neil is certainly a jack-of-all-trades and master of many. Hailing from Scotland, detouring in New Zealand and finally settling in Australia, Neil has held a variety of coaching, leadership, managerial and developmental roles across a myriad of sports, including cricket, gridiron, lawn bowls, AFLW and basketball. From 2018 to 2020, Neil was the coaching and program director at the Essendon Maribyrnong Park Cricket Club, a powerhouse organisation in Victorian women's premier cricket. Prior to his time at EMP, Neil was the Pathway Program and Coach Development Coordinator at Cricket Victoria and an assistant coach and lower 11 captain at the Camberwell Magpies in Victorian men's premier cricket. Neil has also been a spin bowling coach with the Victorian women's cricket team, an analyst for the Melbourne Renegades WBBL team, and a statistician for the Richmond VFLW side. In our chat with Neil, we talk about coaching a club with an established culture of success, having our best coaches work with young athletes, and balancing family life with the all-encompassing nature of coaching. This episode is proudly brought to you by Ferox Cricket, an ICC-endorsed and preferred brand of both international players and cricketers in clubland alike. Ferox Cricket supplies elite quality cricket gear at affordable prices. Contact Kane and the Ferox team on Facebook or Instagram. Alrighty, let's get stuck into the episode. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Neil Gray. Thanks, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be here. First time guest, long time listener. Very pleased to hear that, mate. Um, we've uh, crossed paths over the years with. Our time in Premier Cricket had many great chats around coaching, so it's wonderful to have you on. Now, the listeners might have noticed, uh, I wouldn't even say a slight, but a, quite a noticeable Scottish twang. Can you tell us about your formative years and your journey before you landed down under? Yeah, it's weird. So people ask me, like, what do you consider yourself as? And I've gone, I'm always going to consider myself Scottish. Lived in New Zealand um, for a long time and I have a Kiwi wife. And um, that's what my passport says why I'm in Australia because I'm considered a Kiwi. But yeah, I've actually now lived in Australia longer than I, I lived in New Zealand. So it's strange. And probably in terms of my formative years, the most Influential people in a, in a cricket sense, at least we're all Australian. So I uh, started playing cricket when I was eight. I got picked up at primary school the way people do even in Australia, really just um, through like Milo cricket and the plastic bat, just having some some good hand-eye skills and, and got taken along to the club. And it was a, we were really lucky. I was at a club called Air growing up and we had a, a really long history of Australian professionals. So it was a gentleman called Grant Stanley, who sadly passed away uh, two or three years ago, but played a, a lot of cricket for New South Wales. And then after him, we had Marty Haywood, who again, played a lot of cricket uh, for New South Wales and is um, the director of sport at a really prestigious private school in New South Wales now. And then following him, probably some more familiar names to people. Kevin Roberts was our pro for a year who most of the listeners will probably know is the um, ex-CEO of uh, Cricket Australia but when he was the pro at Air he was um, just a, another New, New South Wales contracted player and then 
Corey Richards, who um, had a lot of success coaching with the Sydney Sixers and with some international sides at Bangladesh. And um, then Matt Horn from New Zealand was there for three or four years. And it was him who um, I was working in, in soccer and still playing cricket for the club back home. And he said, oh, you should you should spend a season in New Zealand. And I did that. I played in a place called Masterton, which is most famous for uh, having the world's largest sheep shearing competition every year. And there isn't much else to it. It's a pretty small uh, little town that's uh, busy for like a week uh, every year. But went there and loved it. Just the, the change of pace from living in London for two years, working in soccer to to going there was just real good for, for my soul and my peace of mind, I think. And went back home to play cricket in the, the UK season and said to my mom and dad at the time, I'm going to move to New Zealand. I'll, I'll figure it out. But yeah, I'm going to do that. So got a job as kind of like the equivalent of a regional cricket manager in Auckland did that for a couple of years and then got doing all my coaching badges and went through the kind of traditional pathway. Started off coaching with a couple of premier clubs in, in Auckland, then um, age group sides and academies for the Auckland Cricket Association and then got a job with them as their schools and coach development manager once I did my level three and became involved with coaching the, the women's uh, state side there as a, as a spin bowling coach. And then during all that, I was always like an underlying theme of my coaching journey, always looking to improve, always looking to see who the, the industry leaders are. And at Auckland, we were the industry leaders in New Zealand, but we were far behind um, Australia. And at that time, Victoria um, were, in my eyes, the industry leaders and, and probably to an extent still are in some areas. So Jared Luffman is the new women's coach of the, of the Vic women's team and me arranged a, a work exchange and I came and worked for CV for a week. And then when uh, Joffa got promoted to his previous role, um, I applied for his job and got it. And then I, I've been in Australia ever since. And that's when, when we started running into each other at, at various places. But every time I go to the MCG, whether it was when I was working for Crowd Victoria, running Milo and, and school cup competitions there, or when I was with, lucky enough to be with the Renegades and, and on the ground for the games, you, you still pinch yourself. Even even when I go to watch a footy game at the G, I still kind of think this is a long way from Somerset Park or uh, Canvas Dune, which are the soccer and cricket grounds where I grew up. And now I'm in a place that holds 100,000 screaming maniacs for a sporting event. No, us Melbournians are very lucky. We've got many uh, sporting cathedrals. Just capping on your, recapping your time in New Zealand as well. Obviously, they were crowned Test champions a couple of weeks ago. What have they done well in the last decade? Do you think to to get them to that point where a population of five million, you know, resources might not be as abundant as what we've got in Australia? What have they done to maximise the talent at their disposal? Yeah, so one of the guys that I did my level three with when I was in New Zealand, Shane Jurgensen, who's the bowling coach for the Black Caps. Um, he's originally an Australian, played for Tasmania and Queensland. Yeah. He's had two stints with the Black Caps. He, he went away for a little bit, did some head coaching of his own and, and then came back to be the bowling coach. And the way he's approached coaching the players has been something that's kind of come through the whole New Zealand system. There's a and I think it started with Brendan McCullum, where there's a relaxed nature to the coaching 
but there's kind of there's there's a real switch that can be turned off and on with the Kiwis. They're really focused on on the game and achieving their objectives as a team, and they're not so much worried about the external. So they've got a real clear plan and mission and and how they want to do things, and whether that's the most popular thing um, in terms of like the perception of being the nice guys and things like that, but that's that's their way and that they, they've all bought into it and they're they're sticking with it. And it, it helps that they've got generational talent and someone like Kane Williamson, who's, who's also a leader that leads in a very different way. I think he's very much have everyone on board. He's not kind of, he's different to what Brendan McCullum was. He was very much, follow me boys, I'll show the way. He's very much, we've all agreed we're going to do this. I'm going to go out and do my job. You go out and do your job and we'll, we'll be right. And um, I think they've they put a lot of resources into coaching their under-19 squad. A lot of the players that have, have come through now have, have been in the pathways programs that they've had. So the, the younger players, Glenn Phillips, Kyle Jamison, Jimmy Neesham, they've all been through the under-19s, through the AA program played first-class cricket when they were very young and they've moved through the system really well and now they're ready. And then and New Zealand's an attractive place to live, cricket or no cricket, um, but it's also one of those that, similar to England. They've benefited from players wanting to, I guess, leave um, South Africa for, for more opportunities and players like Devin Conway and, and BJ Watling have um, been really good honest test cricketers and I think Devin Conway is going to be even better than that but everything's kind of come together for them at the at the right time um, I'd still love to see them beat Australia in Australia I think that's their like in a series I think that's their uh, that's the thing that they're going to have to like really get over and and that will be the the benchmark that they set themselves I think that is the last frontier for them I think uh you know, they've got the golden generation with Taylor and Williamson and Southie and Bolt, et cetera, that probably in the twilight of their careers. And hopefully uh, from a New Zealand perspective, they can contend with Australia because uh, I know that a couple of summers ago it was a pretty one-sided series. So we probably haven't seen the best of New Zealand on our shores. But just doing some background, Nilo, for, for this interview and looking at your LinkedIn page and I kept scrolling down and down and down and the amount of roles and coaching jobs you've had experienced a myriad of sports, cricket, gridiron, lawn bowls, basketball, you name it. How has working across so many different sports shaped your philosophy and beliefs in coaching and, and sport in general? Philosophies are so personal. And I remember when I was doing the coach education in Victoria, I was like, there's no such thing as a bad coaching philosophy. Your philosophy is, is your philosophy. If you believe it, then, then that is the most important thing. I think the, the thing I've learned across all the different sports and look, uh, gridiron I'm on the um, the board for the the state and that's just uh, another different way of learning about sport I think looking at it from a totally not involved with any form of club or team but looking at how the state body interacts with the national body and and the problems clubs have coming and that's interesting and in saying that obviously cricket soccer i've got a background in both playing and coaching i think with all of them it's all about how you can add value and improve the experience not only for participants but the community at large within that sport the hardest part of of any sport is that as a coach you can't do the action for them 
So everything you do has to set up someone for success, whether that's individual success or team success. And the thing that I know the most about myself is that's the thing I have to do the most work on continuously is recognizing that sometimes you just have to watch the car crash. You can't stop what's happening. You can see it coming, but sometimes it's just impossible to change it because it's it's happening in the moment. It's happening in the game. And sometimes it's just happening because it actually has to happen for that person to learn the lesson that you've been trying to to teach them. And I think across all the, the different sports and Especially, it's amazing when you actually you sit down and you speak to people. And I spent three years at Bulls Victoria doing a variety of developmental manager roles. And when you, you sit down and, and speak to them about the actual, everyone's done barefoot bowls. You, you have a pot and a, and a roll and you don't really think about it. You're just thinking about how can I get the ball as close to the, the jack as possible. And there's, there's no real tactics. It's just mm. every time you've got the ball trying to get it close. But then... When you actually sit down with with someone that knows what they're doing and you actually talk to them about how they're, it's almost like a batting innings, what what they're doing with their first ball, like what they're reading from the green. If their opposition bowls a a ball in a certain place, what does that mean for their planet? So even all those little things that you can pull from any sport, just in terms of thought process, clearing the mind, you've always just got to keep an open mind and you can draw conclusions from from anything and not just in sport like my similar to you my wife's a teacher so I learn a lot from her just when I listen to how she communicates with her students so like the last 12 months like sitting downstairs while she's upstairs trying to teach a, a class she teaches history on zoom and I'm downstairs listening and I'm like oh that's a an interesting way to to reinforce a point or to ask a, a leading question. It's um, there's there's always way, different ways you, you can learn, and I think that's why, within reason, to obviously not overload myself, I do try and find probably different and and unique ways to do that rather than the the more traditional. And coaches being facilitators of learning is just it's paramount in this day and age, I think. And not being the the fountain of knowledge, we don't have to be. But ensuring that you know players have a platform to, to learn and evolve and be supported, I think, is almost non-negotiable. Now, with your travels and experiences across sport, you've probably seen the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to coaching. Who are some of the best coaches you've seen in operation in any sport and what made them so effective? So one's one that everyone listening to this podcast in Australia probably will know, and that's Craig McRae. So Flea played for the Brisbane Lions during their really successful three-peat and then he's started his coaching career at Richmond went to Collingwood uh, went back to Richmond and now he's at at Hawthorne and he's been um, kind of tipped to to be one of those kind of assistant coaches that's going to be the next one to to get a chance and I met Craig when he was at Collingwood and he was the coach that was responsible for teaching Mason Cox how to kick so Mason was in um, America, had never even picked up an Aussie rules ball before. He was a basketballer for those that don't know him. And Craig was given, he was the development coach at Collingwood at the time. And he was given the task by Nathan Buckley of before Mason Cox got to Melbourne, he had six months to teach him how to kick. So he wasn't embarrassed when he when he stepped on the track. So Collingwood put a ball in 
in a package and sent it over to wherever it is in America Mason was living. And then he had to start sending videos back to Craig every week of his kicking technique. And I think Craig had been doing that for two or three weeks. And he got to a point where he was trying to figure out how he could show Mason what he was trying to explain without using football, just because he thought he was worried he was using too many examples of things that Mason would just never have seen. So he needed to change it up a little bit. So I'd met Craig because when I was at Camberwell, they're considered Collingwood and, and we used to train at the, the Collingwood Centre, whatever it's called, the Holden Centre or whatever sponsor Eddie had at the time. And he he got in touch with me because it was when I was doing the um, pace bowling assessments for error and detection and correction at Craig of Victoria. And he wanted to use the same kind of method that we used to talk about hip lineup, uh, hip alignment and directionality towards target and everything like that and feet and hands moving together to try and use different methods to explain to Mason what he was trying to get across with him and the way that he his mind works in terms of not even football but just the way that he is really conscious of how people are listening to what he's saying whether they're understanding what he's saying and how he can best, if he leaves a conversation with someone, because I saw him when he was at Richmond, again with the VFL, and they were really successful. And he shared an office with the, the VFLW coach. And how he explains things to players, checks himself, that they know what he's saying, and then can move on the, on the fly, to use a pun, to change how he's delivering that message if he doesn't think he's getting across is extraordinary to me that he's being able to process so many things on multiple levels at the same time while he's doing it, as well as obviously having prepared all that in advance. So that was one. And the one that no one will, will know. So one of the, the roles that I have is I sit on the board of a charity called Helping Hoops, which looks after, provides basketball opportunities for for inner city kids and the, the high rises and low decile housing that we have in Melbourne. And it's it's a charity and the coaches don't get paid a lot, an awful lot to do it. And as a result, the people that do it are some of the most passionate coaches you'll ever see because uh, this isn't teams they're coaching. This isn't state academies. These are kids that come down from the high rises. There's no registration process. They can turn up, pick up a ball and just get stuck in. It's, a, it's an opportunity for them to be physically active. But these kids have got lives that I personally can't even dream of some of the stuff that they're going through, especially in the last 12 months. And the gentleman's name is Omar Coles. He's um, American by birth. He went to University of Toledo and spent some time in the U.S. Navy. But the way he is able to welcome anybody to his sessions, but also have this underlying current that he, he has through all his sessions of discipline and work ethic and structure that sport can bring to these kids if they buy in to to what he's saying every week when he's there with his basketballs on these courts providing them some structure and some opportunity if they invest in him he'll invest in them and he is he describes himself rightly so as, as not a coach more of a like a human connector between these people and, and the sport and those those two people like that's not even anything. It's not even 
anything to do with how much they know. It's it's how they interact with people, and that's they're they're two of the best that I've ever seen at two totally different ends of the spectrum, like a professional and a and an amateur. And I think relationships is a theme with both those coaches, isn't it? Uh, and the second example you mentioned there with Omar Coles, I think providing structure to kids that otherwise wouldn't have a great deal of structure in their home lives is such an important feature of, of junior coaches in particular. You know, I'm a teacher out in the Western suburbs and some of the stories you hear, it's, it's really unfortunate. But that little uh, opportunity throughout the day where the, the kids are with you for six hours and you can provide them some routine structure is so important for them going forward. So some wonderful examples there. And Mason Cox, I'm a Carlton supporter, but you've got to give him credit. Whenever he has a shot within 35-40, he, he rarely misses. So he, uh, he does make the most of his opportunities. Now, moving to, to cricket, you were the coaching and program director from 2018 to 20 at EMP and Victorian Women's Premier Cricket. Uh, EMP are a wonderful club. As essentially the head coach, was it a case of coming in and keeping the machine ticking over or were there some significant changes that you implemented to challenge the playing group? I took over from essentially a, a legend of, of women's cricket and Karen Rolton who'd been there for, I don't know how long Kaz was there for maybe five or, or six years and EMP had had success. They'd won three or four premierships of the various formats when, when she'd been there. And when I took over, it was actually the playing group stayed largely the same. There's always a tiny little bit of churn in, in competition, but by and large, it, it stayed pretty much the same. But the world of women's cricket was changing around. EMP is more the, the case of what was happening. WBBL became expanded in terms of how many games the players were playing, which meant that the, the WBBL contracted players were less available to club cricket. The women's players were going full time. At the WNCL, which again meant less availability at club cricket and more focus on their job, which is perfect. And there was also the bubble was moving through of the young players, all the investment that Cricket Victoria and Cricket Australia had been putting into girls' cricket. Those girls were the Meg Lannings and Elise Perry's that the role models were were beginning to show growth and and these young girls were wanting to play cricket. And you suddenly, from when clubs were having 12, 14 at training, now you were getting up to 20 to 30 women's um, cricketers on a club training night. And with that, that meant that it needed to be more structure, needed to be more organisation and more commitment, I guess, to development and a, and a pathway for those girls. So that was really what, what I brought in during the... I'm still at EMP, just in a different role now and that was what I brought in along with um, some a couple of really good assistant playing coaches at the time and, and Nat Shiloff and Lyndall Daly and oh that was what we we tried to bring in we didn't need to reinvent the wheel or anything but we just needed to put a little bit of structure and create that those opportunities for the the girls as the game continued to grow. How have you found putting in that work as the as the head coach over, the, over those couple of years and then Remaining involved, but I guess slightly from afar. And George Shaw is the is the head coach there, and a very positive person. How's that dynamic gone for you in in observing uh, from you know that one step removed? I guess. Yeah, so I did the job for two years, like the director of coaching role, which was 
by default the, the de facto head coach. Yeah. And then the plan was always that with the president, the, the, the two presidents, because I straddled two presidents, was that that would always be a transition role. And then it would return to a more kind of um, traditional kind of head coach position. And that we basically, we didn't advertise that publicly, but it was known privately that that was what the, the plan was going to be internally. So last year I stepped back to be George's assistant to help with the transition. And then this year moved into a more strategic role within the club, focusing on, on a couple of things. And someone like George is, you'll know, he's the dime a dozen. Like we, we unfortunately lost the semi-final this year to Dan Nong, who went on to win it. And I don't think I've, like the players were obviously heartbroken, but George was distraught, basically. And to have someone come into a club after one year and display that much emotion and, and empathy for not only the playing group, but the, the club as a whole, because... The one thing about EMP is that the, um, the the 70 and 80 year old women on the balcony are probably going to give it to you, the coach harder than you would get at any men's premier club because yeah. those women played uh, women's cricket both internationally and domestically when it when it was hard and it was a hard slog and they were given up a lot of things to to do it so they are uh, they are red uh, red and black all the way through and will always want to know the ins and outs of, of any decision. and <laughs> But on the flip side of that, they're always going to be there to put an arm around a young player if you need them to to talk to them or just give the group a, a bit of a, a kind of rev up or a pick me up if, if you want a different voice. So the reason that I've stayed involved after the kind of transition is, is simply because of them and the, and the people at the at the club, like they, they do make it like a, a family and they do make it more than just the results on the field. Like we didn't win anything in my first year and we won everything in my second year. And I honestly don't think, like they don't get me wrong, like you play to win flags, but for the club, that wasn't, that that's not the underlying definition of success. It's more about, is everyone developing? Is the club a better place than it was 12 months ago for everyone to be a part of? And I think that's the, the amazing thing about EMP is that regardless of whether players retire like Kristen Beams or move to another state like um, they have, like Emily Smith's moved to Tassie, like the club moves with them and they'll always be engaged with the club wherever they are and the club will always be engaged with them. It just seems to be a club that does everything right, you know, on field, Obviously, performance is very consistent from you know, year to year, but uh, even little things like the social media aspect and just a really professional, diligent club. Um, and prior to EMP, you were from 2013 to 2017, the Pathway Program and Coach Development Coordinator at CV. I guess there's a theory around having our best coaches involved in junior or pathway cricket. What, what's your take on having our best coaches working with younger players rather than at the elite level and are there enough professional development opportunities and genuine pathways to better our coaches? Yeah. So I'm in a unique position where I've, I've been the one that's had to make suggestions for change to the wider community, whether they're right or wrong, you can agree or disagree. And, and the great thing is that everyone's allowed an opinion. And, um, and then the last, whatever, six or seven years, I've been sitting on the other side and giving 
opinions from a position where you don't know all the facts. It genuinely is the, the world's hottest topic. Uh, I'd imagine like when leader local cricket tweets something about the pathway or the YPL, their, their clicks and comments probably go through the roof because everyone's invested in it and everyone's got a story, whether that's when were you a Western spirit or were you a, what were you, Mitch? Yeah, I was a Western spirit kid coming through. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone's got a story about when, when they played in the pathway or, and, and that's great because there is a legacy and, like when it, even further back than that, when it was the Dowling and people were, were playing for their clubs, who they played with. Like I know a couple of guys from Geelong still talk about when they played with Hodgie at, at Geelong and stuff like that and the Dowling. And like everyone's, everyone's got a story. And I think Russie and Duncan and Joffa do a fabulous job with the academy stuff that comes out of the, of the top end of the pathway and from a girl's perspective at least like the development that those girls show when they're in that program and then come back to, to club cricket as someone that's seen it in the last two years is, is tantamount to the the work that that Duncan's doing with the, the coaches there and I think the important thing wherever it's at whether it's at the YPL whether it's at the academy levels that the best coaches in those spaces are the ones that want to be there if that makes sense they're not the high-performance coaches that are coming in solely because they're high-performance coaches. They might be the best coach for teaching Steve Smith how to bat because he's a professional athlete that hits balls every day, five days a week for two hours a day. But they're the best coaches that understand how to communicate to kids at that age group because like we've talked about, in most cases, it's not about what you're telling people, it's about how you're you're telling them it. So 100%, we should definitely make sure that whenever there's an opportunity for the coaches to be the best they can be, that that should definitely be the, the option because they are these, this, it's a fact that the resources you put in a, a, at the earliest possible opportunity are going to help the, the kids to develop, boy or girl. But the coaches have to want to be there as well. Like they have to, want to coach young athletes they have to know how to to coach young athletes as well with regards to the pathways for especially in cricket I, I don't think they're there cricket's a sport with really finite opportunities like your podcast with Callum he probably has taken it to a, a, an unbelievable level where he's made connections with people like Gary Kirsten and he's expanded his Boundaries far beyond Melbourne and, and Victoria for opportunities he has, but that's that's not open to everyone or easy to access for everyone. And it's not like footy where you've got so many AFL clubs and then the VFL and you've got all these businesses that need coaches and, and coaching opportunities. And even local footy clubs have a lot more paid coaching positions than your average local cricket club as well. I think I was really just fortunate and in the, the timing of when I came through at the kind of back end of the of the non-fully professional time of, of women's cricket I had the opportunity to make a contribution when I did with the Vic women's side and, and with the Renegades because I think now past players are really keen to take those opportunities where they might not have been in the past and that's the same in, in men's and women's cricket and I think you're seeing more players come out of the game very uh, soon after stopping 
playing, going straight into coaching, whether that's in a specialist coaching role or a head coaching role. And some of them succeed and some of them fail. But in the main now, I think that's um, a kind of recognized career path. And again, similar to what I said before, as long as they're the right person for the job, it doesn't, as long as that's where they want to be or they accept that that is a part of their pathway that they need to succeed in before they can move to the the next step, then then that's fine. But the opportunities probably aren't there for a club coach to really develop beyond where they are because ultimately in terms of Victoria, for example, there's really only five teams you can possibly coach. So there's five people every year getting a, a chance to be a coach. So it's a simple numbers game, unfortunately. It is. And I guess perhaps slightly controversial, but I think a lot of those players that are transitioning from their professional careers into coaching are learning how to be a coach at the elite level at that time. So they've got their old plates on and working in professional setups and whether they've had that apprenticeship or grounding and cut their teeth and made those uh, little errors along the way at lower levels before they do rise to that level is probably something that, you know, you could spend hours debating. Uh, I guess I'd love to see more, more stories like Simon Helmet or, uh, Andre Borovic or, you know, Jared Luffman, I guess, have done really well for themselves, but they're probably the exception rather than the norm. Yeah, yeah. Joff has done a fair apprenticeship now from when he won the flag with with Richmond to, to where he is now. But he, he's one of those guys that just works away so hard in the background that he's he's earned his, his spot. And I wish him all the very best for this, this year coming up. No, you certainly take your hat off to him and uh, yourself, you've been an analyst at the Melbourne Renegades and statistician with the Richmond VFLW side as well. I'm interested just to know around data and statistics and analysis that when it comes to community and local sports, sometimes the resources aren't really there to support uh, things like that. Do you have any tips or suggested tools or software when it comes to the collection, collation and analysis of data and stats for local coaches? Frogbox is obviously a, a game changer. I remember when I was at Camberwell, doing the assistant coaching there, we just set up a video camera and just had it running for the whole innings. And then I'd spend Sundays and Mondays, kind of like what Callum talked about doing, just cutting that down, highlighting the key bits and putting them up onto a private YouTube channel for the players to watch. And you think, I think maybe we had like one or two players that would watch it and that would be it. So it was a lot of work for, for not much and you'd have to scroll through and yeah, it was Crazy, but Frogbox has obviously made a massive um, difference there. I think um, the most important thing whenever you're doing um, any form of, of stats or analysis is you've got to do two things. You've either got to know what you want to look for, so be really targeted in what you're trying to count or quantify, or have something that fits into an agreed KPI or part of your game plan so you're actually making yourself accountable or holding the team accountable against something they know that they're supposed to be achieving. So one, I used to walk around Camberwell first grade games with an iPad and on the iPad was just this um, app called Darkfish. It's basically like you turn your uh, iPad or phone into like a, a big touchscreen calculator. So you set up a little grid and then the grid you have boxes. So four balls, errors, bouncers pick whatever you want to do and you just press that button and it's basically keeping a count and putting a little tag next to it and you can look at breaks and go we bowled 
12 bouncers in that spell or we bowled we bowled seven overs where we, there was a four off the last ball of every over so we weren't closing the overs out kind of thing simple things like that where it's just like you can give an absolute number without having to sit and count through the scorebook at the end of the day for something like that because everyone remembers boundaries being hit but they don't remember when they are so if you can actually say we're closing out our overs really well here dot balls on the last etc whatever handing over the overs whatever coach speak you want to use just a simple little thing like that just touching um, and you can have the beeps on so you hear it yeah anything or you just go old school and just have a pen and a bit of paper and just do a tally mark like anything like that like everyone thinks it's about the footy is totally different you've got everything you've got heat maps and chains of possession and stuff like that but even for the VFLW when I was doing it like there was I was running the computer I had two people watching and talking to me all the time so home and away one person was doing um, a different form of coding and then there was someone in the box that I was talking to that was then talking to the coach so like and that's in VFLW women's footy there was five of us doing it like it's it's a big job. So like I said, the most important thing is knowing what you want to look for or tying it into something that you're trying to do. And then how do your players actually learn? So what we talked about, like some of them might need to see it. So you might actually have to record it. They might be visual learners. Some of them might not want a printout at the end of the day because they, at the best of times, they can't process something that's written down and trying to do it after spending a hundred overs in the dirt on a Saturday's like no chance so you need to be able to present that orally in a way they're going to understand and if they're really strong kinesthetic learners then you, you've probably got a problem and they're not that mm. interested in data however you want to do it but again you can get really simple VARC tests online and it's a fun little game to do in the preseason that would probably help coaches as well get a better understanding of how their players learn as well and I'll, I'll go down to local footy sometimes and you've got the uh, the statistician there and he's probably four be- four beers deep and he's counting handball receives and tackles. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a little bit dubious. But uh, I think <laughs> having it as specific as possible, not biting off too much. Um, and I love that point around linking it back to your KPIs. I think that's really important as well. You touched on your time at Camberwell and you're an assistant coach there in lower 11 captain. Uh, as a senior coach over the last eight or nine years myself, finding quality lower 11 captains is an absolute nightmare. What are some of the key attributes in being a lower 11 captain in terms of balancing development versus the desire to compete and win? I spent five years at Camberwell. And um, the first three years, I didn't didn't play at all. And then it got to a position where we were like, we just need someone that has played a, a little bit bit of, of cricket in the fourth 11 because fourth 11s in most in most clubs in the competition they're full of really young players or players that are coming to try out premier cricket and they'll either find their feet and move up through the grades very quickly become career fourth grade players or or go back to local cricket because they they don't like premier cricket so it's a really transient group so the person that is the captain of that fourth grade side needs to be able to to bring people together, be willing to be flexible in like what opportunities people need and balancing that wish to be competitive because especially for the young kids, um, they're coming from school cricket where they probably 
mostly dominate their competition. So they don't want to get flogged every week because that's not what's fun for them. So you need to to strike a happy balance, like you said. And I totally echo what, what Youngie said about the club championship. We won the club championship at Camberwell the year I was captain in the fours. And that was the thing that we kept coming back to. It was like, look, it doesn't, let's, we, we know that if we make the eight, then we'll have done really well. Like we'll have gone above where we want to be. But every game we win helps the, the club in this quest for the, the club championship, which is which is what we wanted to win. And that was something that we really put a lot of stock in in terms of the messaging and stuff, in terms of how they, they could contribute to the, the whole club. And it really depends on, on the team, I think. The, you've got to create a culture and whether that's a culture that permeates through the whole club that some um, clubs are, are really strong at or whether that's a culture within within the team of um, like we had a bit of a kind of dad's army thing kind of going on because it was me and a, a slow left arm Sri Lankan bowler who were in our mid-30s and then the next oldest player was like 23, I think. So it was a real like culture shift between the two of us and, and the real young group and neither of us batted we were 11 and jack every week so yeah. we did a lot of bowling and then we're, we're still really close as a group that that team across those two years because we created an environment that was fun and yes winning was a focus but it was a focus in terms of holistic development as well and really celebrating the successes of the guys when they did go up to the higher grades and if they came back a couple of weeks later hanging a bit on them kind of thing but being really proud of them when when they went up so it is a real challenge and coming from New Zealand where that culture doesn't exist there's a real ones and twos culture and then once you get past the second grade in New Zealand it's real there isn't a pathway if you're not playing in the twos you kind of get cut loose and look after yourself find a game for one of the one day teams at the club yeah it's um it was interesting to to come to somewhere where there is this overarching club championship for everyone to aim for and like Youngie said that's that's where successful clubs are, are made like you obviously you got one yourself at Essendon when you guys had a real good core group throughout all four grades and you can definitely, I think, coach or assistant coach or player, you can look back and say that was a good year because everyone was was engaged and the, the vibe was really good because it's hard to win a club championship if you've only got one or two strong teams. It's something that I think at Essendon a couple of years ago when we happened to, to win the club championship, I think the first three to four months, it was a case of each team sort of focusing on their job and players doing the, the best they could. And then you get to late January, early February, think we're actually a sniff to win this and I think that the efforts really then start to concentrate into the last six weeks of the year and making sure you play your part to, to get the club over the line. And something that the club was you know, really proud of, um, it probably snuck up us on, on, on us a little bit. One final point, Neil, um, and a probably a little bit different, I guess, this question in terms of family life, but I wanted to pose it to you anyway, because we've both got young families. Uh, we know that coaching can become all-consuming and often on your mind when your head hits the pillow each night, what are some tips that you've got for the listeners to separate the pressures of coaching from your family, work, or social obligations? I've got a little story to finish on about this. So my first year at EMP, we lost the um, the T20 final to Dandenong. Kim Garth bowled really well. 
and we ended up losing by, I don't know, like a handful of runs, seven, eight, 10, 12. I can't even remember now. It doesn't really matter when you lose a final. <laughs> and I went home and I think Freddie's my son. He would have been like one and a half, not even two yet. And um, he had some teeth coming through. And I was still, uh, I was still running over the game in my head what could we have done better? Should we have changed the batting order? Should someone have yeah. bowled? All the things that you think about. And he honestly, like, he didn't care. And I was, I ended up falling asleep on his floor. So it was a Wednesday night and we played at Junction. I slept, basically slept on his floor um, that night just because he needed someone, like, just to be near him. That was his most important thing. And it was the most important thing at the time. And I said to the girls on um, Sunday when we had our next game, I was like, it was it put when I woke up the next day, like put it in perspective, like he didn't care. He was just happy that his dad was was in his room with him when he when he needed him. When we won it the next year, we won the T twenty final the next year. I took went home, showed him the medal and he, I don't again he he didn't care. Like it mm. he was happy. The medal was shiny and it was good and he was happy that dad was happy. But you just have to kind of accept sometimes that it's the hardest it's the hardest thing in the world to do because especially when you're not upset for you like in most instances you're not upset for you you're upset for 11 12 other people that you feel that you've let down what could you have done to to make the experience better for them what like what i said earlier about the philosophy did i add enough value to them and often that's the, the case and you just have to, like there's, there's so many self-help books and all this stuff about like Michael Jordan, like you miss 100% of the shots you never take yeah. kind of thing. Like that's that's the most important thing. Like if you had a crack, great. You're always going to learn something from a loss. So what did you learn? What can you do differently? It's only a mistake if you make it twice. The first time you do it, it's a learning. Second time you do it, then then you've made a mistake. That's what I tell my son when he makes a what he calls a red choice. It's only a red <laughs> choice when you make it a second time. The first time you've just made a mistake. So it's hard, but like you've just got to go. Ultimately, it's only a game. And, you know, I think perspective is really important. And from a coaching point of view, if you've prepared the, the group really well with training, you've had specific roles for players, you've given feedback, um, you set the team up the way you wanted to, and it still hasn't quite worked. Sometimes you just got to accept that and, and then learn and reflect and gear up again the week after. But when you walk in that door on a Saturday night when your club's been clean swept and you've nicked off for three and you've gone for six and over, um, <laughs> yeah, your kids don't really give us stuff, to be honest. So, but no, it's uh, it keeps us grounded, I think. And family's obviously the, the absolute priority rather than uh, coaching local sport. But Neil, before we get too soppy and emotional, mate, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. Uh, I think your journey is really interesting. I, I your diversity of experience, you're incredibly well-rounded. The attributes and experiences you've picked up have really shaped your philosophies and made you so versatile. So I'm sure coaches will learn a lot from the from the conversation and thanks for jumping on the podcast. No worries. Thanks, Mitch, and good luck for everything else that's coming up. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching Clubland. A shout-out to the talented Aidan Arandes for putting together our podcast theme song. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Feel free to leave a rating and review. To catch the latest updates from the podcast, check us out on Facebook or on Twitter. 
at Coaching Club Pod. Thanks again and catch you around in Clubland.